podcast where we attempt to rank every single horror movie ever. And on this episode, filling in for Quincy is uh, author and a good buddy of the show, Foz Meadows. How's it going? Uh, good. How are you, Ryan? Doing good. I um, This week is the, the Nebula Awards, so I feel like I'm sort of... Uh, I, 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 I'm a schmuck who didn't actually pay for a Nebula uh, sort of membership, but I, I am going to Barcon every night, which is, uh, I feel like they keep uh, encouraging us not to do that, where they're sort of like, guys, you're supposed to actually have bought a, you know, ticket, but uh, I'm, I'm the worst. How are you doing? You are not the worst, and I am alright. I've had a miscellaneous plague for most of the week, but it appears to have cleared up today, which is, yay! Yeah, so wait, like, just like a generic plague? You've been sick? Yeah, well, I, my husband uh, teaches at a university and is therefore exposed to undergraduates, and oh, I have no. a six-year-old child, so I live with two disease vectors, basically. Yeah, yeah, uh, so if anything is even vaguely plague-like, it is going to find its way into this house <laughs> and manifest. It's like a Petri dish. Like, you've got a kid and somebody who works with college students. Yeah. Also, my husband has the ability to turn any germ that he encounters into a head cold. Like, that's that's his special power. That is the worst superpower. It is. It's a really shitty superpower. It's... Mm -hmm. He has asthma that seems to manifest only as whatever sickness you get, it will become a head cold. (laughs) Yeah, so he was bitten by a radioactive asthmatic child, and, you know, he gained the power of getting asthma from from things. Yes. Um, So, uh, the thing that we uh, ask first-time guests uh, on the show, uh, which, again, thank you so much for being uh, on this episode... Uh, what is your background with horror? Like, did you, um, have you been watching it your whole life, or did you come to it later, or are you not a big fan at all? Uh, it turns out I am a big fan, and I've come to it in stages, and it's sort of weird, because if you'd asked me as a teenager if I was into horror, I would have said no, but with the regular teenage exceptions of watching, you know, blockbuster horror movies that come out, or oh, sure. seeing them at sleepovers, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I did used to get really scared of them, yeah. so... I recently uh, watched The Ring for the first time since oh, 2002. Fuck. And that movie scared me shitless in 2002 when uh-huh. I was like 15, 16 or whatever. And now I just it was just a film that yeah. I watched. Yeah. And even not having seen it for a while, knowing where the beats were, I still didn't get any kind of fear from I'm like, oh, this is a movie, but VHS is scary, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, but it, it, it's sort of snuck up on me. And really, because I've watched so much, you know, I'm a sci-fi fantasy person, so I watch the stuff, that the horror that overlaps with that traditionally. And then we moved to America from Australia in August last year. Mm-hmm. And coming up on my first American Halloween, I was like, right, okay, oh, yeah. to get into the spirit of things, I will watch all of those classic horror movies that I've never seen. Yeah. So uh, the Halloween series, I rewatched the Scream movies. Um, what's the one? Not Friday the 13th. I started that, but I it was very camp and bad. <laughs> uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Yes, that's the one. Texas Excellent. Chainsaw Massacre and just like a bunch of other stuff. And I've sort of... It was a weird realization that, oh, this doesn't actually scare me like it did when I was a teenager and yeah. now I'm enjoying it. And now I suddenly realize I've actually watched quite a lot of horror without that being... Just by dint of watching a lot of movies right. over the years. And now basically I've been mainlining horror movies for like the past six months. So oh, Wonderful. I, listen, you're, you're living that ghoul life. Yeah. And, and this podcast is, is listen, it's, it's, you come by it honestly. You're just mainlining as many of them as possible. Which, yes. those Halloween sequels, I've realized, um, do you watch The Good Place? I've seen the first like two episodes okay. and then infinite gift, gift sets. 
Very good. Because um, there's the thing uh, which is the medium place, which yeah. is sort of like if you've been like a terrible person. The medium place for medium people. For medium people. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I feel like uh, I realized Halloween 4, which is the one right after Halloween 3, which has nothing to do with the rest of the series proper and is probably like the second best movie in the franchise. <laughs> um, I realized that like Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers, is the, mov the horror movie that would be available in the medium place, where it's like perfectly fine, but it's like... Just a mouthful of Wonder Bread, you know? Yeah, as opposed to the one, with, or is that the one with Josh Hartnett? Oh no, the one with Josh Hartnett is Halloween H2O. Yes, I watched, that was one of the Halloween movies I watched, and it is exquisitely late 90s. It's wonderful. Yeah, you've got Joseph Gordon-Levitt in the mix, getting killed <sighs> in a hockey, yeah. Yeah, it's, he's in that opening scene, and you're like, oh wow, that's him. Yeah. And... I think I was more in because I've inexplicably become a hockey fan the past year or so, which is like a whole other thing. Oh, sure. But watching that, I was like, oh, wow, hockey in a movie. And then, oh, Joseph Gordon. Oh, okay, I guess that's a skate to. Okay. Yeah, well, that's. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but did, did you ever. Did you get to Halloween Resurrection with Busta Rhymes spin kicking Michael Myers? God, I think maybe, but it's kind of blurred together in my head. It's like, kind of. Yeah. The, 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 it's one of those annoying series, like the Predator series, Ugh. where after a while they start to give the sequels non-sequential names so like yeah. there's like the three the first three and then we're just gonna tag a word after it or put a word before halloween yeah. and it's not it's not going to be immediately obvious what order this is yeah, unless you're looking at it on imdb yeah the <laughs> fact that predator the predator and predators like it's are, are three separate entries in the franchise like for god's sake what are we doing I see, I nearly rewatched Predators last night, and frankly, I think that would have been a better life choice than what I did watch last night. What'd you watch last night? I watched We Are What We Are. Oh, and I Jesus. Am so angry. Because, <laughs> firstly, yeah. I paid for it because I was watching it with my husband, who notoriously falls asleep uh, in movies. Very good. And I just sort of thought, okay, I'll buy this one because he's going away tomorrow and then he can, that means that I'll, the rental period won't expire and he can watch the end of it when he gets back. Right. Being a good spouse. <laughs> and I'm watching this thing and the thing is, because I was just, I found it by clicking around on iTunes mm -hmm. as you do. Right. So I'd watched the trailer immediately beforehand and the trailer tells you basically everything you need to know about this movie in a really infuriating way because it looks like there's going to be more to it than what you are shown in the trailer and uh -huh. there really is not so like the big thing it, it tells you that they're cannibals in the trailer jesus christ like it, it doesn't use the word cannibals but it shows you a page with kuru written on it which is <laughs> if you're even like vaguely horror nerdy or have watched Hannibal before you yeah. know that that is the cannibal disease uh -huh. and with a voiceover going your wife had a rare disease and so it's like <laughs> okay you know if you've Jesus. seen the trailer you know going in that it is a cannibal movie there uh -huh. can be I think my husband was more invested because he had not seen the trailer he just accepted my movie choice blithely for the and, and, and God bless him for it like he, yes. he, he was just on board for whatever was on, on the on the slide for that night yep so to speak yeah and um <laughs> So I suspect there was a slower burn there where you're like, oh, they're going to eat them. Whereas when you've just seen the trailer, it's like, okay, so they eat people and... And then it did that thing in the trailer where it shows you, here are these dazzling quotes from reviews. Right. And one of those quotes says, it saves its best shock till the end. Does it so actually? It does actually say that in the trailer as okay. one of the review quotes. Oh, I mean, is the best shock actually at the end? No. Okay. No. What's at the end is something that just completely not even invalidates, but just ignores the whole rest of the movie up until that point. Please so, tell me it was all a crazy dream about cannibalism. It's, 
just it's this movie where it's this sad pastoral cannibal scene where you've got like this like white American family living not in a trailer but managing a trailer park. Sure. And the film opens with the mother dying with like blood coming out of her mouth, although it originally looks kind of supernatural. It looks like black coming out of her mouth. Right. Like there's like a demonic possession thing going on. Yeah. And but she dies, and then the family are like, oh no, we have to continue the ritual without her. And there's these two daughters. Uh, one of whom is 14, the other of whom is probably like 18 or so. Right. With a little little brother who's like six or so. And the story focuses most tightly on the two girls and their father. Uh, but the girls are like, oh, so mum's dead now, so we don't have to do the ritual. And the dad's like, no, this is what we always do. <laughs> and it turns out... I will out, turn this goddamn ritual around, so help yeah. me Christ. And it, like, so apparently the ritual is once a year for religious reasons. They don't really go into... <laughs> Why? Yeah, sure. Like they kill their family, kills a person, and eats them, and it's weird because like the ostensible reason given for this is oh, back in the seventeen hundreds, the winter was bad, and we went into a cave and we had to eat a person to survive. Right. And then somehow in their modern iteration of this, it's tied up with like this weird version of Christianity where it's like the lamb, but we don't really know why those things became entangled as like a family religious belief, or why it was carried on. It just kind of is. And there's all these questions that that raises that don't get answered. And I, I mean, immediately I'm wondering like, like how, how like the Eucharist factors into this, that like, well, we do symbolically eat the body and blood of Christ on Sunday. So let's... so why don't we just eat this random teacher that we stole from the side of the road I think and bashed over the head with a tire iron? I think you'll find that this random teacher we've abducted quite like our Lord Jesus. You just, you yeah. Know, eat, that's... The, eat the flesh and blood. So it's this weird, but it's this slow, creepy thing because the whole, in as much as there's anything interesting about the movie, it's these cannibal daughters who know that that's what they've been doing because they're okay. old enough. Like they know that that, and you know they kill a person together and it. They've like leaned into the Shawnee Bean thing. Like they know they know what they're about. Yeah, but they don't like it, and they're saying, you know, if we tried to stop, our dad would would make us do it. Uh-huh. And this whole narrative the whole way through is. We want to get out of the cannibal family and we're mm-hmm. conflicted and we should run away. And then there's like the big dramatic showdown at the end of the movie where they try to run, but the dad stops them and the navy gets killed and it's this whole thing. Be a cannibal, not a cantable. Yeah. <laughs> no, sorry. And then there's like this this side plot with like the doctor in town figuring out that the they're cannibals and coming to confront them and it's really kind of pointless because it doesn't add anything to the narrative. And then apparently the biggest shock of the movie happens? Yes, and the biggest shock of the movie is that when the... Because the dad realizes they're going to get caught for their cannibalism, so he's going to like feed them all arsenic to kill them. Uh And then rather than eat the arsenic dinner, the daughters say, I love you, daddy, and then they eat him alive. Nice. And it makes... No sense, because they were literally running away from the cannibalism like two minutes prior. Like the only reason right. to attack him at that point is because he's the thing that's been keeping them in the cannibal lifestyle and he has like strong armed them back to his house. Right, you know, that's, you know, honestly, the hometown life is like that sometimes. You know, your cannibal family uh, prevents you from getting out and you just have to eat them. Yeah, and it's, but it's just so bizarre. It's clearly like some dude director going, oh, this is like a plot twist and I'm so clever. No <laughs> one you, has ever done this before. Did you know you could just do some arbitrary bullshit and then be like, oh, it's a, it's a subversion. Yeah, see, I don't oh. do characterization. <laughs> 
Yeah, so they eat the dad. And... Listen, he has a name and it's Brett Easton Ellis and he doesn't appreciate this roasting of his writing oh, method. God, I wish someone would eat him. Oh my God. Um, he, would, he, would, he would taste like shit. He would, that is true. So yeah, so, uh, and this is We Are What We Are, which I, what, that came out like a couple of years ago? It's 2013 and it was, yeah. it, when I was outraged about having wasted my evening on it last night, I was yeah. looking it up and it's an English version like adapted from a Mexican film from 2010. Okay. And I looked up the plot summary for the Mexican film, which is vaguely similar in that it's cannibal family times. Mm -hmm. uh, one family member dies, except it's the dad in that one, and it's the mum who's trying to get them, and they have arguments about the purity of the victims that they choose, because there seemingly is something more religious underpinning who can and cannot be eaten for what reasons, and right. there's like a bigger police role. Um, but the whole weird daughter's turning on the dad thing doesn't happen in that version so i don't because here's the thing yeah what the fuck like why it was just so pointless it's like yeah. you built an entire movie on this sort of like it wasn't interesting but it was at least oh this is a different take on hillbilly cannibals where right. instead of being full bore into it they kind of want to get out and that creates a degree of sympathy and then it's like no no they're just going to eat him and mm -hmm. so everything you've seen is pointless so let's dive into the movie that um we uh, are doing for this episode which yes. I had never seen before. It is uh, the orphanage, yes, uh, which is uh, a Guillermo del Toro joint. I want to say like he produced it. Yeah, I don't think he directed it. In my head, he's uh, he's the director, but I think he was just the producer. But it has a very uh, Guillermo del Toro feel, and it's a Spanish language horror movie from mm -hmm. I think two thousand and seven, two thousand eight, something like that. Um, yeah. So, uh, and, and which going with the producer director thing? Are you are you familiar with the uh, the the teach the controversy thing with Poltergeist? I am not. Uh, so Toby Hooper, uh, who was the director of um, the movie Poltergeist, who also did the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, he so this was Poltergeist was produced by Steven Spielberg, but there are a lot of Poltergeist truthers who are convinced that this is actually a Steven Spielberg film. Of all the things to be a truther about, that seems like a small and meaningless hill to die on. You would certainly think so, but here's the thing, you know, like you watch Poltergeist and like there's so much Steven Spielberg stuff in it that you're sort of like, I don't know, like I can definitely see how the guy who did the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was responsible for a lot of stuff in Poltergeist, but like, you know, there's like kids on bikes and families and sort of like Spiel Spielbergian stuff. And I feel like this movie is sort of like, I think of it as a Guillermo del Toro movie because so many of his hallmarks... Are, are in it. Yeah, completely at the forefront of the movie. So it's... To give, like, a, a quick summary of it, mm -hmm. um, there's a little girl... Well, it, the movie starts with a little girl in an orphanage in Spain mm -hmm. um, playing with her fellow orphans, uh, the majority of whom are disabled in some way. Uh, Laura is the main character. We see her as a little girl. Mm -hmm. uh, then we cut through to her as an adult... She is now the mother of an adopted little boy called Simone, and she and her husband have moved back to the building where she lived as an orphan mm -hmm. and are going to effectively revamp it as a home for five or six um, disabled children to come and live with them as, as carers. Her husband's a doctor, and, and we don't really know what she is, if she's, a if she's a social whatever, but she presumably has the legal right to do this. Right. Um, Which, I mean, you have the right to, but why would you build it on the bones of a former old-timey orphanage? Like, that just... Well, because seemingly she's, like, from the opening shots that we see, she had a lovely time there. And she sure. was adopted from there, and it was a very beautiful location. Um, her little boy, Simon, we see, has two imaginary friends who 
he's already always had since before they came to the to the orphanage um and then as they're in the house, he starts to say that he has a new imaginary friend. Which is never what you want to hear from your small child. No, not in, not in the horror movie context. No. Uh, the friend is called Tomas, and he becomes... Not obsessed, but he keeps telling his mother that Tomas is doing these things, like setting a puzzle for him. Right. And he has to solve it, and if he solves it, he gets a wish. His mother thinks that... He's making it up. Right. Uh, you get a visit from a weird, creepy uh, woman calling herself a social worker who lets us know that Simon is HIV positive and is also adopted. Two facts which he does not know about himself. Right. Uh, she's kind of weird and creepy and shows up in the garden at night and they have to like chase her off. They don't know why she's there. You know that thing when you just get like a, a <laughs> random social worker in your, in your garden shed and you got to like chase them off with a trowel? It's like, you get, get out of there. And, and they, yeah, they scurry off into the night. Yeah, it's like raccoons. Yeah, absolutely. But with paperwork. Paperwork. Yeah, more. Well, I mean, slightly, <laughs> slightly more paperwork than raccoons, but not by much. Yeah. So that happens, and then the day comes where the other children are meant to move into the house. There's mm -hmm. a big party, and of course, because it's uh, Guillermo del Toro's influence, everybody is in masks. It's like a mask, not like a masquerade, but everybody's having a, a celebration. Mm -hmm. And at the start of this, Simon is saying to his mother. You need to come with me now and see Thomas's little house. Right. And his mother says no. They have an argument. Uh, Simone knocks a tray of cakes out of her hands and reflexively she slaps him, is immediately horrified with herself, and he runs off. She has to go and deal with the party things. And that is seemingly the last time she sees him because then at the party he vanishes. She sees what she thinks is him, which is a, a little boy wearing a creepy sack mask that looks like an old scarecrow. Yeah, it um, looks a little bit like Sam from Trick or Treat, where it's just this big fucking weird sack mask. Or like, or maybe not even that, maybe more like uh, David Cronenberg's uh, villain from Nightbreed, where it's just like a big fucking weird sack on his head. Yes, so she sees this, this little boy, whoever it is, with the sack mask, tries to take the mask off. The boy pushes her, she gets her fingers caught in the door. Uh, it's one of those visceral moments where it's, it's not even body horror it's just we've all either done that before or nearly done that before and you have that visceral wince of ah oh. fingers in the door jam yeah yeah it's, um, it's, it's, it's not body horror but I feel like body horror is predicated on like I feel like so much of body horror uh, like so much of horror is necessarily body horror because of like the, the uh, structural integrity of the body being compromised yeah and things happening to your fingers for example that should not fucking happen to your fingers like getting slammed in a door it's a very mundane injury and that that is that contrast of something seemingly creepy like a little kid in a sack mask mm -hmm. and a very mundane injury to the hand is kind of like one of the main contrasts in the film yeah um so she goes hunting through the house trying to find simon she can't find him uh there's a point where she looks into a cupboard under the stairs huge metal poles that have been stored in there for some reason come tumbling out she shoves them back in goes yeah. looking around uh runs down to a beach cave where she'd taken uh Simon before, which was the first time he talked about seeing Tomas. She thinks maybe that's his little house. Right. Thinks she sees a little figure as the waves come crashing in in the cave, but falls down, cuts a leg open badly. Yeah. He's not there. Uh, we then have various time skips of first six months and then another three months. So by the time you get to the end of the film, nine months have passed yeah. in the middle. A, pre a pregnancy, by the way. Yeah, a full pregnancy for the film. Yeah. Not that she is pregnant, but no, no, no. yes, metaphorical. Yeah. Uh, where she has been trying to find him, has not had any success, and has eventually come round to something supernatural is right. happening in the house. I need to find my son. Ghosts have taken him. His invisible friends have taken him. 
Her husband is not really on board with this. He's, but they're trying their best to deal with what is effectively the loss of a child. Yeah. Uh, we can we can spoil the ending. Yeah, yeah, let's go for it. Yeah, yeah. So all of this stuff happens. They get a medium who comes into the house who tells them that she can hear crying children dying. Laura solves the mystery, which is that uh, Tomas was a little boy who was the son of the person pretending to be the social worker who had worked at the orphanage when she was a kid. Mm -hmm. The other kids had taken his mask off because he had a deformed face and he, when he was in the sea caves one day, hoping that he would come out and show them his face. He was too ashamed to come out, so he drowned in there. His mother held the children responsible for this, even though they hadn't meant to kill him and subsequently poisoned them. This had all happened just after Laura was adopted out, so she never knew about it. Uh, And so it's the ghosts of the children and of Tomas haunting the house. But this doesn't help her finding Simone. Uh, Her husband is sort of saying, no, come out of the house, come out of the house. She says, give me two days to say goodbye. And in this time, entreats the ghosts of the children to say, where is is Simone? Where is my son? At which point, there's a very beautifully creepy scene of her playing a one, two, three, knock on the wall game that she used to play oh, while boy. ghost children creep up behind her and then scatter through the house. Uh, and they eventually lead her to the same little cupboard where she'd shoved the poles mm-hmm. in the beginning. And what we find very... And watching this again as a parent, I have I didn't have a child the last oh, time I watched yeah. this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Watching this movie as a parent has to have uh, informed this watch a lot. Yes, and it's heartbreaking because what has happened is there's a little unknown room at the bottom of the house that used to be Thomas's room when mm-hmm. he was alive. Thomas's little house. The ghost Thomas had taken Simon down there, but the door to it is through this cupboard with all of these poles in front of it. And when she had shoved the, when she'd been looking for him at the party in the first place and mm-hmm. the poles fell out of the room, the reason that they were there to fall down as opposed to stack neatly in the corner is that her son had snuck in through the little door the ghost had shown him gone down these rickety old stairs to Thomas's little house. And when she'd shoved the poles back in there, unbeknownst to her, she had locked him in. She'd blocked the door so he couldn't get in from the other side. And when she heard what she thought were ghostly noises that night, it was the stairs breaking as her son tried to get back up to her. Yeah. So the whole time no, my he God. has been dead in this room under the house. Uh-huh. And that's why she couldn't find him. He wasn't taken by ghosts in as much, except in as much as they've shown him the room. Yeah, He's just been dead. And she then chooses basically to die herself, to remain a ghost in the house with him and the other children who were her childhood playmates. Yeah, so that and you know, so that she can take care of them and take care of him. Yes, and... including Thomas, who is not malicious at all. No, and and uh, so this movie, I love so much that while watching this movie, that I didn't know which. Now the problem is you get kind of horror movie poisoned, right? Like mm. when you when you've seen. Uh, for for example, uh, on on this podcast, we have now uh, done three hundred and eighty nine horror movies, just for, just for this podcast. Jesus Christ! Uh, but when you when you've, <laughs> you've seen so many so many horror movies, I was watching this going, all right, are we doing like a, a poltergeist thing with uh, ghosts have kidnapped my child and I'm a mother and I need to like bring in a medium and a, a paranormal team to you know figure shit out and find him in the afterlife or wherever they've taken him. Uh, and it's not that. And then you're like, well, I mean, maybe it's like uh, a sort of Friday the 13th thing where, you know, Jason's mother is enacting revenge for the, the drowning death of her child. And it's like, nope, not that either. And then you realize, um, actually, it's just the banal, hor- horrible, heartbreaking thing of a random thing happened. Your child got locked in this room and 
And it's something that could have happened without the influence of the ghosts, is the thing. If you move into a large creepy building with lots of hidden rooms and old staircases, it is very plausible that a child will find one, get in there, and you won't know where they are. That's something that can very conceivably happen just of its own accord, even without a a little ghost boy showing you where he used to live. Yeah, and and there's there's something very sort of um, Americana about that kind of death because of the sort of folk legends about like, uh, are you you familiar with the one with the trunk and the, the, the missing bride? Yeah, rings bell. Uh, scary, scary stories to tell in the dark, which is obviously just like a, yeah. has always just been a compendium of sort of folklore horror stories with rad illustrations. And the the missing bride one is the one where um, there's a, a wedding, and it's on the grounds, and then they decide to play hide and seek, and the bride uh, finds the perfect hiding place, which is a big fucking trunk in an attic. Uh, and then as she's getting into it, the lid of it knocks her on the head, and she falls into the trunk, and it locks, and she can't get back out. And then they, you know, they spend days looking for her and they can't find her. And then, like, years later, somebody opens it ah. and there's the dead bride. Yeah. And there's that, I mean, I think there's something so viscerally heartbreaking about being alone and nobody knowing where you are and dying there and, and just nobody knowing where you are. Like, I, I'm feeling feelings even describing the thing itself because of just the thought of dying like that. It is, it is a small domestic tragedy. And the, the, kind, the one kindness that's implied of it is that it, he didn't starve down there. No. It's that, but almost that's the fact that the staircase broke and he fell and you see his little body at the bottom, you know, desiccated after nine months. Right. At the bottom of the stairs, you know, he clearly fell and died instantly. Yeah. But the thing is, if the stairs hadn't broken, if he'd just been locked in there you would have been able to hear him calling out eventually. Yeah, eventually you would have been like, oh shit, he's in the house somewhere. Let's see him and dig and through we can, the place. And we can find him. But right. because he just fell and died, it became this this mystery. Yeah. Um, well, and also because you've got the other built-in thing of like, if he had fallen down there, um, he, being HIV positive, mm-hmm. needs medication. Yes. And so you know ultimately that like, as a viewer, you're watching this and going, okay, so, so uh, Simone has gone missing. He needs that medication to survive. And he's been gone for nine months. He and can't. Yeah. He can't still be alive unless the ghosts are also pharmacists, and yes. you know they, they moonlight and can get a script for for HIV medication. Simone is almost certainly dead. But then there's the other thing of like, um, you wonder how supernatural this movie is going to go for the fact that you know. Er- so earlier on in the movie, uh, Simone is telling uh, his mother that uh, you know if you if you uh, go on a, a treasure hunt with the the, the ghosts. baby ghosts. Then, and if you're clever enough and you win, you will be able to make a wish. Yes. And you don't know if at the end of the movie, obviously, Simone is dead, but because you've ever watched a a supernatural uh, movie, you know that what's dead may not always be dead. And so you're like, okay, maybe because she was so clever and she figured out what happened to the orphans back in the day when the old, when, you know, the the woman whose mother, uh, whose son died poison all the kids you're like okay so maybe she gets to wish that someone will be back and he'll be back and it'll, it'll all be fine and it's not no the thing is that he was a little kid saying that and it's not yeah. necessarily true and i think something that this film that really sticks with me about it apart from watching it now as a parent and that visceral terror of the last thing you do with your child is have a terrible argument where you do something uncharacteristically awful and then they die yeah um while you're looking for them and you're meters from them at any given time and yeah. you don't know is that it deliberately, I think, engages with the horror trope of disability as horror. Right. Uh, and it kind of debunks it. Because yeah. the thing that... It's, it's, you're meant to find the little kid in the sack mask that she encounters that is either Tomas or her son. We're not sure if, if he got... 
Because the mask seems to have been real. She she yeah. grabs something physical from it. But it could just be that it's her son wearing the mask that Thomas gave him and is still cross with her for, for the slap. And that's why he pushes her and she gets the hand stuck in the door. Right. Or it could be Thomas's ghost. It, I think it's more likely that it is her son and he runs and... and hides yeah but we don't know that's that's left ambiguously yeah but we're meant we're meant to find the mask creepy and disturbing yeah but the the moral of the story is that the mask is what caused the problem the fact that uh tomas was hidden away from the other children because of his disfigured face uh and made to wear this this mask is ultimately what killed him they the children were naturally curious they wanted to see what was under it Mm -hmm. it's not implied that they bullied him so much as that they they just wanted to see if he'd come out without it. They didn't know when they had him in the cave that the tide would come in. It wasn't, right. you know, these are like six and seven year olds. They didn't know that's what they were and, and so it's doing. The, and, and so it's the parents trying to cover it up and trying to obscure, you know, these things that caused it to happen. Yeah. So I think there's an argument. So Benina is the name of uh, the old woman who was Thomas's mother, who was the pretending to be the social worker. Yeah. Uh, there's an argument to be made that she's actually the culprit here because yeah. presumably she was complicit in or, or the author of her son being kept apart and made to wear this mask, that yeah. she was in some way ashamed of him. And the thing is, because it was an orphanage of, of children with disabilities. Yeah. So, And when we see them all as ghosts together at the end, they all just accept him, that he's just another one of the ghosts. Absolutely. Um, death has erased any of those perceived differences between them. Right. And really the only difference in how he was treated was by the adults, was that they made him live somewhere separate. He wasn't an orphan, so he didn't live with the orphans, but he was, he was made to wear this mask. And, and we see when we see his little room, uh, that he was a beautiful artist. He'd done these gorgeous drawings that almost look sort of, um, Klimtian yeah. in, in terms of birds and the, and the other children. Definitely. He just wanted friends, and that's why he wanted Simon to come and see his little house. Yeah, um, and, and honestly, like, also, if you're um, Tomas's mom, why, of all the masks that, like, I mean, if you must be a helicopter mom who's like, my son has a physical deformity that will, you know, that, I, that I'm ashamed of and that I think he should be ashamed of, why would you make it that? Like, like you're gonna you're gonna give him the weird frowny melting sock puppet mask? Like, why? I like, I think it's almost almost plausible in like it's like that Elephant Man thing oh, yeah. of this was a particular period in history where we're sort of in rural Italy, and I think what is meant to be like the '60s or '70s. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, she she appears to be a single mother, which would have been difficult then. Sure, she's kind of an awkward person. We see these flat, like old Super 8 video snippets of her. So it looks like she was a, a kind of weird, bit awkward, awkward, lonely person with a with a deformed child. Yeah. Um. Probably that sort of scarecrow mask was all that she that she had. Yeah. And it's the in as much as there's like a big moral to this movie, it's listen to children. Yeah, because if because if. Uh, she had listened to Tomas about like wanting to you know like go out and meet the kids and hang out like and then if um, the main character of the movie had listened to uh, Simone yeah. about the the little house under the stairs like yeah but it's again it's a moment of it, like what it's it's te- it's inviting us to look at something that we would find visually disturbing like a little boy in a sack mask and 
say, why do you find this horrifying? Yeah. It's a child. What makes a monster a monster? Like What makes a monster a monster? And really, disability is not scary. No. These are just these are just children. Yeah. And what is really monstrous is uh, taking vengeance on them. So like, yeah. in as much as you have any vengeful spirit moments, and it's not even vengeful, it's just sad yeah. that she having ha- had suffered the loss of her child and decided to uh, enact revenge on these other children because yeah. of that. And there's something monstrous about that. Now, like the movie is also so beautifully shot. Mm. It is ridiculously like pretty to look at. I, it loves slow tracking shots. And I love that this movie has this atmosphere that's like sort of, it's lonely. The movie mm. feels lonely. Like there are so many shots of just things in the middle of the frame surrounded by things and just there's a kind of buffer between the subject of the shot and the things surrounding them. Um, and it makes total sense to me that this is a Guillermo del Toro movie because of um, the thing of the monster is not something outside of us that needs to be subdued and killed. And it's not, um, you know, anything that's sort of there's us and them. This movie is, I think, solidly on the side of it's pretty much just us and that's what's happening. Yeah, it's it's basically just talking about uh, humanity in, in a strange way and empathy. And when you're talking about the tracking shots, I think it gives it a very liminal feel because yeah. you're in this big, the, the pro, almost the entire movie is shot within the confines of the orphanage, this big old beautiful house and it is beautiful and menacing by turns depending on the shot and the angle and and what's going on around it right um but it has this continually liminal uh sense to it and we get that you know when they call in the medium who discovers the the child ghosts uh and she's saying it's like two timelines overlapping each other right and that's the constant sense that you get that it's half this place it was when laura was a child and it's half the building it is now it is now yeah um and it's a lot of shots in hallways as people move between rooms, like it's moving between the past and the present. Yeah, uh, which, it's... well, and, and, and also that medium. I feel like there are a couple of, uh, I feel like, professions in horror that are, um, without exception, like, good, and the people in those professions are good, and I think it's janitors and uh, mediums in things. Because, like, janitors, <laughs> if you're a janitor in a horror movie, everybody trusts you, you're a good person, you know, you, you, you know what really happened in this school 30 years ago, but I'm not going to tell anyone about it. And, like, sort of... <laughs> uh, there's that. And then, like, the medium in this, I feel, I, I feel like... Uh, now, this movie does a thing... I feel like it's in between doing the... But ghosts aren't real. And sort of just spelling it out where, like... There's, there's a bit of time where everybody's kind of going, all right, but this is crazy. These mediums are a bunch of fucking charlatans, and, and they're just trying to bilk you out of money. And I think that as the viewer, you know that this medium is on the level. Yeah. Like, you know that she's she's giving them the God's honest truth about what she's sensing in this house. Yes. And it's... Something, though, that is nice about it is that it, even though the husband is a, is a skeptic about the, the fact that his wife is, is seeking these sort of supernatural explanations for what is going on in the house and what right. she's experiencing and what she's worried about what's happened to their son, mm-hmm. he doesn't... Even though he clearly doesn't think it's real... He has a very rational basis for his dismissal. And there's a great conversation that they have where he basically says, look, you're inviting these mediums in. If our son is alive, a medium is not going to help us find him. Right. And if he's dead, they can't bring him back. Which and is true. Which is true. And it's, it, it, it's respectful and it's honest, but it also doesn't solve her problem, which is her 
very specific conviction. Yeah. And she's kind of right in this. Yeah. Is that the ghosts know where Simon, where, where Simon. Simon is, uh, yeah. or that they've taken him. Yeah. And they didn't take him, but they do know where he, where is. he is. So she, is, they're both right. Yeah. Everybody's, um, everybody's trying their best. Yeah. Like. And it's it's. It's a weird film to, to categorize as horror in that it kind of makes you question what horror is. Right. So the first time you watch it, certainly I recall, mm-hmm. there are there's not really many jump scares in it. Or they're, no. they're, they're unconventional ones where it's not like a big of music and something... Like Christopher Nolan blomp and a thing jumping out. Yeah, it's not that. It's smaller disruptions like finding an old lady lurking in your garden shed and you right. don't know why she's there or there's a sudden crash in the house in the night and you don't know what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just these uncertainties, basically. Mm-hmm. And it, it plays on that sense of why is... Why is this frightening? Why is this unsettling? And yeah. even having watched it now, I think three or four times over you know a period of twelve years or so, sure. It's um even knowing where those beats come. Even on this viewing, I'm still watching it, feeling, oh god, this is this is tense and this is frightening. Yeah, well, and, and the, like the I feel like the scene in here that in a lot of other movies would have been like the it would have been in the trailer. And it would have they would have milked it for way too much, and it would have been a big fucking musical sting. Is the moment when um, it's in the third act of the movie, and, and she's got her like she's knocking on the wall and doing that game with mm-hmm. the the ghost babies, where it's like you knock three times and then you turn around and, and they've gotten closer to you. Yeah, you think that's gonna be a big like she's gonna knock and then turn around and then ah like there's gonna yeah. be a face there and it's gonna be like a screaming kid, and it's they don't do that. It's tense as. Fuck, it is yeah. deeply suspenseful. Because at that point, you still don't know whether the children are malicious or not. Because they're playing right. with her, but they're children. They play. And yeah. that's something that, that the film does really well. It's mm-hmm. that if you're looking at this as, okay, well, what is a ghost? Yeah. It's, a, it's a, a remnant. It's a presence left over, which is kind of the thesis the film has. Residue. A residue. It's like, well, okay, what's it a residue of? Children. And what are children? They're playful. Yeah. They can be. They can be angry. They can be mischievous. They can be gleeful. But they're not. These are not violent children. And if you yeah. if you were able to sit back and think through that rationally, you would understand that she wasn't in danger from them. Right. But it doesn't decre- decrease the creepiness of okay. doing. It's effectively what she's doing is what the time. What's the time, Mister Wolf? But yeah. Uh, but a, a different version. Of, sorry, I said Italian earlier. I meant Spanish. It's a Spanish version of that where she's knocking on the wall, turn around, and they have to slowly creep up. We see her playing that in the very first scene as a child. Yeah. And it's this continuous panning shot where we focus on her. She says, you know, un, dos, tres, knock on the wall. And the camera pans back to show the empty dark room behind her, swings back to her, un, dos, tres, swing back, the door has cracked open. And it just it's this oh. incredibly tense build as and, and these it, child shapes appear in the background and, like, and, and get te- closer. And it's telling you what it's doing. Like it's mm. not gonna pull a big jump scare where you know you're gonna turn around and suddenly it's gonna be there. It's giving you all of the bits to be scared anyway. Yeah. Like this is necessarily scary. It makes me think of um, I don't know if you ever saw the uh, the Conjuring. I started watching that recently and I didn't watch the end of it. I watched about the first. Half. You're not really missing anything. I honestly, I, I do not under. I think on this podcast specifically, we've we've uh, frequently clutched our faces and yelled, "What's the big fucking deal about the Conjuring and why do people like it so much?" Yeah, I, 
this thing so with my whole constant thing of mainlining horror movies at the moment there's a few that yeah. I haven't finished and it's not because I'm getting scared of them it's because I'm getting bored yeah and or, or at least it's like if I'm going to be feeling tense about something I would like for it to be going in a direction that interests me. Yes. And, um, and, well, and, and The Conjuring has the... I feel like the trailer for The Conjuring is one of those... Um, it's one of those trailers that is so good and so much better than the actual movie. Um, I feel like Godzilla 98 has the same thing with the Bigfoot crushing the T-Rex skeleton in the museum. Like, yeah. I, I feel like there's... Uh, the Conjuring, uh, the trailer has the, uh, the clapping game. Yeah, and that is genuinely eerie. Oh, it's great. I mean, sp specifically the shot with, like, uh, her holding up a match... In you know at the top of the stairs in the basement with the door closed and, and then the hands come behind yeah her. and they've cut off the music and it's just slowly zooming and then and it's like I remember the first time I saw that trailer I yelled the moment the hands came out and clapped in the darkness behind her before the candle blows out um, and I feel like this this does that but less uh, corny yeah so it's interesting because I feel like with the Conjuring it. And I hate to use this phrase, it blows its load too early. It really, it, listen, it spends it all of this time cutting away to the eventual, uh, you know, ghost hunters who are the real life people that, it, you know, that it, whose narrative it was sort of adapted from along with Amityville and various other of course. movies. Um, but it spends so much time with them that we really don't get a lot of time in the house and then once they show up they're like ah oh, yes we have solved the mystery of whence came this presence immediately <laughs> right. and it was this woman from Salem and blah 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 and yeah. it's like okay you've just told me the entire mystery and now all that remains for the next something like an hour of this movie is you getting rid of this thing and I'm sorry I'm just not interested you know fuck Agatha <laughs> Christie for doing a mystery you should have just given me everything that happened at the top of it and then explained how for an hour um, but honestly the orphanage I feel like uh it does this thing that I love so much, which is that it gives you these emotional moments with these characters that, also like Poltergeist, you care about what happened to, Sim uh, to Simone. Like, you yeah. care about all of the characters in this, because they are, goddammit, they're all trying their best. Yeah. And honestly, like, the, the, the reveal of what really happened sucked the fucking wind out of my lungs. It's, like, it's, it's so... Such, it's such a tragedy, because it's... It is and it isn't her fault. Like right. she, she is ha like it's not remotely her fault. It's not something she did intentionally. Right. It's a small domestic tragedy. It's not quite on par with, but comparable to those horrible stories you hear occasionally about uh, a parent whose child dies because they leave the car seat in the back seat because it's it's been a busy morning and they've got multiple children. Yeah. And you know somebody, I'm thinking of a specific instance. It was a teacher. She didn't normally take the baby because her husband normally took the child to daycare. Yeah. She just, in a complete, you know, and Dance. you know this as an adult, you know, you, you get busy mornings where yeah. stuff just happens and you can forget things really easily. Yeah. She forgot that the baby was in the back seat because she didn't normally have it, went into work, and when she came out at the end, the, the a dead baby. Dead baby. Yeah. And you have to live with that. And that's... Yeah. And you're thinking like it's not it's not malice it's not even really neglect because no. the rest of the time it's like a because split seconds inattention. It's disrupted your routine, and this wouldn't have happened otherwise. Yeah, it's a split seconds inattention that has devastating consequences, and it, there's yeah. something so achingly human about that. Yeah, uh, and, you, and terrifying because it's plausible. Yeah, uh, have have you seen the movie Hereditary? 
no, my husband has seen it and I read the summary of it was like, yeah, I'm going to... I'm cool. <laughs> I'm gonna just... I, don't, I don't mean that. Well, I'm I mean, just like, going to hard, hard pass on that. <laughs> well, that yeah, that, that's honestly the scene in Hereditary, which won't be a spoiler for anybody at this point, I feel like. Yeah. Uh, the so at, uh, at the beginning of the movie, at, like at the end of the first act, when um, the kid uh, Charlie, when she gets her head knocked off mm. while, after hanging it out the window, while her brother, like that's such I, like the moment you get with the brother where he's just sitting in the car and it's silent and he's processing what has just happened with the fact that his sister stuck her head out the window because she needed air because he wasn't paying attention to her allergies at this party that he didn't even want her to be at in the first place. And it's just the banality of, like, this isn't this kid's fault, but this has permanently changed this yeah. family's life. So something something that I keep... You mentioned allergies. Something that I keep thinking about are these... I think there's two or three cases that have happened recently, and they're just mm -hmm. so awful, of basically, like, middle school bullying incidents where kids with really severe nut allergies have been killed by classmates who thought, It'd like... It would be funny to give them... It would be funny to put some peanut butter on my hand and touch this kid. Yeah. Uh, because they don't... Like, it's... The thing is, it is a malicious act because yeah. they know that he's... You know, whoever the kid is, is allergic. Yeah. But it's... They're not trying to murder him. They literally don't comprehend that huh. that's a possible consequence yeah, because it seems exaggerated. They're just like... Oh, maybe he'll roll around and he'll have a rash and it'll be funny. Yeah. Well, because it, it seems like it seems like an absurd statement that somebody could be so allergic to a peanut that if you touch peanut butter to them, they will die. It just seems like adults scaremongering. Yeah. And then you do it and oh shit, we've we're thirteen or twelve or eleven or ten and, and we, we just have murdered, murdered we've just murdered a classmate because we thought it would be funny to yeah. do this, and it wasn't. And it wasn't. Well, and, and I think that the orphanage takes advantage of, I think, uh, th there's necessarily a horror in being uh, what you think is at, being at the mercy of a child. Mm. Because, you know, like, the bit where she's uh, trying to communicate with these these dead kids, and she's at the dinner table dressed up, and she's got, like, dolls in place of them, and, like, she's, you know, getting frank because she's... She knows that they know where her where, where Simone is. Yeah. And I think there's there's necessarily I think this is why kids are scary because kids are like they, capricious. They, they're capricious and like they're not you know I mean like they're not particularly malicious but it's they're not not malicious like they their brains are not finished cooking. The and, the great uh, way that Cat Valente describes it in the girl who circumnavigated Fairyland in a Ship of Her Own Making, which is a fantastic book I highly recommend. Mm -hmm. uh, but she talks about children as heartless. Yeah. And in that very specific sense of growing up is what. It's the per it's the process of learning empathy. It's growing yeah. a heart, and that some children, everybody has it happen at different rates. And some children are sort of small and wild and fey and terrible, uh, and some have have grown hearts very early. Yeah, um, and then some of them turn into Max Landis, where they, they haven't really <laughs> developed a sense of empathy. And uh, uh, some of them grow up to become politicians. Politicians doing terrible things. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, and I think that this movie sort of does that thing of like you're meant like you're meant to be afraid of these kids, but then you realize that that's fucking silly. And, and, and I think that's one of the reasons that, um, for example, that Twilight Zone bit with the kid who sends people out to the cornfield, mm. if they displease him, like, the idea of an omnipotent child is so scary, like, because of just the thought of somebody with the, the ability to remove, you know, for example, your son from you, and you can't find him and get him back, and you, it's, it's, I feel like this movie completely deconstructs why... That's scary. That's scary. Well, it's like a, it's like a, uh... 
commentary on directionality of violence. So a really common when we're talking about like horror and disability, mm-hmm. a really common theme in that is mental illness is scary. Yeah. And if somebody is schizophrenic or bipolar or they're hearing voices, then right. it's demonic and it's evil. And you can't reason with them. And you can't, can't reason with them and it's terrifying. Whereas in reality, people who are mentally ill, particularly with schizophrenia or bipolar, are much more likely to have violence enacted upon them than to be violent. Right. And I think what this film does is the directionality of violence. So in horror, uh, terrifying children are terrifying because they can control mm-hmm. adults. And like the idea of a creepy child with a oh, knife sure. or a terrible nursery rhyme or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, my mommy's going to get you or something right, like that. Right, right, right. Or they're like, come play with us or whatever. Yeah. But in reality, it is adults who do violence to children yeah. or who cause children harm by ignoring them or not listening to them, yeah. or not believing them. Yeah, and kids are just responding to their sur- like their surroundings, and they're trying to navigate it. Yeah, and this film plays on that and reminds you of that by saying, hey, look, it was actually an adult who killed these children, and because they're children, they're not seeking revenge. They're just lonely, and they want to play, and they right. want the fact that they were killed to be acknowledged. Well, and yeah, the fact that they died horribly, yeah. like, scared and crying in a, in a room after being poisoned. Um, this, God, I, I, this movie is just fucking outstanding. Like this is, and this is one of those movies that is as soon as uh, the credits roll, I immediately just. You ever just like watch a movie and instantly just breathe the word "fuck"? Like yes. So there, there are two horror movies for me which which occupy that top tier. Mm-hmm. Um, one is this, which is the orphanage. The other is the Awakening. Yeah, the Awakening. Which is so so good, and again is another. It, like it's a, it makes really good pairing with the orphanage, I think, because yeah. it has without wanting to spoil any of it, because I know you haven't seen it, uh, it does a, it has a similar kind of commentary on things that are normally uh, seen as sources of horror, which, and like, what what is the real monster here? Well, yeah. I, I Honestly, and I think the, the last movie that I saw that um, gave me the, uh, the fuck feeling after was The Babadook, which mm-hmm. I feel like also it plays on a lot of the similar, a, a lot of similar themes with, like, having a kid and you can't necessarily reason with them and you don't, you know, you're trying to navigate it as a parent, but also you're scared, but also you're like the, the, the concept of mourning a thing like that. Like how do you mourn the death of a loved one? And like, I had watched uh, the Babadook with a friend of mine who had just recently lost his father. And it was like a religious experience for him because of what, I, you, have you read the, uh, the Wikipedia page for the Babadook? No. So th- literally I, 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 I Actually, I can tell you exactly why. I was about to say, I don't know why I think this, and I can tell you I know exactly why I think uh-huh. this. There was that, literally my whole reason that I knew about the Babadook was because of that weird meme that went around <laughs> about gay, it. The gay icon, the Where the Babadook was, it was a gay icon because Netflix accidentally sorted the film into <laughs> the LGBTQ category. Right. Uh, even though that, it, that and is not what just, it is. And then we all just decided that... Okay, so, yeah. the, you know, the Babadook said gay rights. Absolutely. And that was yeah. on Tumblr. And that was my exposure to it. And for some reason, <laughs> on the basis of... I don't know why, other like, what aspect of that meme led me to think this, but I thought it was a really old horror movie. Right. Like, in my head, it was something from, like, the 70s. I mean, it does look like something... Like, it, it, I mean, he is big and stretched out in black and white. It does look like, like Dr. Caligari or something. It kind of looks like Beetlejuice. Yeah, kind I of Beetlejuice. I think that was, like... Cause, and because it's such an absurd saying of the Babadook. So in my head, I was like, ah, oh, obviously, this is, like, an old 70s horror movie that's having a weird revival. It did not occur to me that this was, like, a modern horror movie that I might want to watch. Right. Um, well, well, and it... Yeah. So I, I feel like that's one of those movies where... Um, I don't know, like the sort of monsters or metaphors thing. I do love the fact 
that uh, I think people started to make the joke that Pennywise the Dancing Clown was also a gay icon. And then as one, it seemed like everybody figured out, you know what? Maybe maybe, maybe the child-eating monster clown that lives in the sewer is not something you want to be associated yeah, with. Yeah, maybe the, the, av- the, av- the avatar of child abuse and, and predation... And yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe let's not do that. Yeah. I mean, and in fairness, the Babadook being the avatar of mourning and mental illness and grief, hmm. like, I, I, I don't know why, I don't know why that one's totally okay for me, but child abuse and predation, yeah, it's, it's yeah, no go. It's no good. I think, like, I think it's interesting though. So something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, partly because I, I knew we were going to watch this and I was uh-huh. thinking about what happens in the orphanage prior to was rewatching it. And it's made me think horror and this is going to seem like a segue sure but it's made me think that horror and romance actually have a lot more in common um they really do than than is commonly discussed because neither of them is exclusively a genre right they're both themes as well and i feel Mm -hmm. like i've gotten to arguments online before uh, about romance uh and romance writing because it is in casual conversation particularly on twitter it is difficult to distinguish between uh if you were talking about romance, the genre, as opposed to romance, the trope, yeah, or trope. romance, the theme, which the can occur, period. yeah, which, which can occur within other narratives, yeah. So if you're talking about romance as a genre, particularly like romance novels, that's a very specific thing. But if you're talking about how romance is portrayed in other genres, right. that's like there's a Venn diagram oh. of overlap, but it's sure. not the same thing. No. And I feel like horror is similar in that it's. You talk about horror, the genre, but if you're talking about what is actually horrifying... At, at the heart of what is horror. Yeah, or horror as component of story. Right. It's something very different. And having watched like a bunch of, you know, fairly trash horror sure. recently, <laughs> along with some good stuff, uh-huh. it's made me think that there are particular screenwriters, maybe, or directors, or whoever is responsible, who don't get that horror is theme as well as a genre yeah and in trying to create a scary horror movie think the only way to accomplish this is to make something that's so graphic or gory or shocking Mm -hmm. that you feel afraid or feel revulsion every time you watch it right whereas i would contend that it's the same thing with romance is that what even when you know what's coming Mm -hmm. so to speak if it you're not always going to feel like a friction of the same thing, but you're going to, like, a jump scare isn't going to get you every time if you remember where the jump scare happens. Mm -hmm. But as we're watching The Orphanage, even knowing where those scares were, you still feel something because you're invested in the emotionality of the situation. Yeah. And it's what can, you can inure yourself to, like, graphic gore or graphic horror. Right. Um, If, but people are going to have different things that scare them. So what makes a good horror movie isn't something that is trying to scare everybody each time repeatedly. Right. It's something that has a storyline that you can watch again, mm-hmm. but where even if you took the horror out, it would make sense. Yeah, well, and, and yeah, exactly. Like if you took the horror out of a lot of movies that are horror, it wouldn't work. But I, I feel yeah. like I, I feel like for me, uh, there are lots of ridiculous splatter movies that I'm a big fan of because yeah. that's sort of the thing it is, and that's great. Uh, but I feel like if it's a thing that only disturbs or upsets me for the duration of the time that that scene is happening, and then I never think about it again, really, yeah. that to me is not particularly effective horror. I feel like the orphanage is effective horror to me because I'm going to be thinking about that fucking movie. Yeah. 
uh, for a while. And, and I, I also feel like there is a lot of uh, overlap for me between romance and horror because they're both kind of dismissed out of hand as because of being visceral and because of producing bodily reactions. Yeah. So like if, if a thing, you know, turns you on or horrifies you, like if it, if it, if it, if it hits you in Mark the gut... Mark me down as scared and horny. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like if it hits you in the crotch or hits you in the gut, I feel like yeah. people tend to look down on that. And, and horror and romance and also comedy, I would say, th those three occupy a similar space for me. I think comedy gets more of a pass, I think, because it's, and this is, you know, tying into cultural prejudices sure. or whatever. It's seen as a more like every, every guy thing, but the corresponding uh, catch to that is that only particular types of comedy are seen as uh, sort of appropriate. appropriate or worthwhile. But it's, I think the thing with romance and horror is that they, if, in terms of what you, there is a distinction between what you personally find sexy or romantically, like that you would want romantically in your own life, right. and what you personally find scary, yeah. versus what what you will buy into when you see it on the screen. Yeah, and then um, like what's particularly gripping, and, and this is why for me, like uh, writers who do sex scenes are so fucking brave, because again, <laughs> like it's. People who shit on romance are, first of all, wrong because romance rules, but yes. also because it takes so much fucking courage to write a sex scene because in that moment, there's nothing scarier than the thought that you will write a sex scene that turns nobody on. And yeah. that, that it'll, you know, and that somebody will take this as a referendum on what your sex life is like or what you're into. Well, so it's interesting because I spent a lot of time as a teenager loudly decrying rom-coms oh, sure. and saying that I hated it. But I also liked uh, Austen and Shakespeare. And eventually I came to the conclusion that I just didn't like Hollywood rom-coms. I didn't right. like, and I don't like a lot of those mainstream tropes because they're very un, unexamined yeah. in their pure Hollywood form. There's a lot of like encoded sexism and bullshit. And... Now that I write a lot of fanfic, particularly smutty fanfic yeah. on occasion, mm -hmm. um, it's interesting when I sort of slowly got into writing sex scenes where you like dip your toe in the waters and then you right. get better at it. Just the tip, just for a minute. <laughs> you just bang it home. Yeah, it's fine. Um, but it's this thing of, I, I now have this like mini rant that I'll go on when prompted. Mm-hmm. About how writing a good sex scene is actually a lot like writing a good action scene. Yeah, good fight scene, yeah. And one of them is respected and one of them is not. But it's it makes sense because both of them are describing bodily actions, which yeah. means that you have a limited range of words that you can describe to describe the actions and the body parts involved. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't just keep using lots of euphemisms because you'll get lost. Right, and, and, and I don't know any romance writers who still use, like, his manhood or his rod or his whatever. His throbbing meat stick or yeah, whatever. Yeah, no, nobody's out here talking about pork swords or whatever. No, but it's, um, you have to describe the emotionality of the act. Like, why does it matter in context? Mm -hmm. So it's the same as if you've got a fight going on, you have to say, you know, why, why do we care about this fight? It's not mm -hmm. just, like, this bloodless thing. Right. It's... Um, there's a body involved in a person behind that body. Yeah, and wh why is this important to them? So you're describing the emotionality, the physical actions, the wider context, and you have to describe the sensations as well. And it is very hard. And you also have to choreograph it. Like, yeah. <laughs> that one of the funny... And that, that can be quite difficult. So if I'm writing an action scene in a, in a book, yeah. uh, and mentally it, it, you call it blocking when you do mm -hmm. uh, cinematography. Like, yeah, or, or like or stage combat. Or stage right. combat or anything. Uh, you work out the blocking in your head, so you're like, okay, so these two characters are facing each other, and this person's right-handed, which means it's coming on the left if it's if they're facing each other. Right. Uh, and how long does it take? You know, how many? How long can you fight for before you tire? And 
all yeah. of these kinds of things where if you're writing it's the same if you're writing a sex scene and uh, the, some of the ones that do fail a little bit even if they're still hot mm -hmm. it's like okay i can't physically imagine the position that they're in yeah wait how is his dick able to crane at that angle yeah. from where he's across the room how is what is the, what? Well, you know the, the great line about um the sex scene the gay sex scene in american gods oh yeah from my one of my favorite of reviews that should just be uh in in the smithsonian mm -hmm. um but apparently it was it's some um, brian not I, I always forget which brian it is there's brian singer and brian fuller it's Brian... Probably Brian... Oh, Brian Singer. Or, no, Brian Fuller is the one in charge of... Yes, because Brian Singer is the asshole and Brian Fuller yeah, yeah, is Brian, the... Yeah, Brian Singer is the... I yeah. get them mixed up because yeah. they're two Brian's. Yeah, listen, who, who can keep them straight? They're two Hollywood Brian's. Well, one, only one of them is straight. I, no, wait, I, I think they're Actually, both they're gay. Actually, they're both gay. They're both gay. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the confusing thing. And it's like, ah, oh, the other gay Brian. And one of them did Hannibal. So yeah. that's the most important thing. Yes, so Brian Fuller, who is good, yeah. as opposed to Brian Singer, who, who is, is bad. a dick. Yeah, fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. Brian Fuller was asked uh so when he first did the um the scene where salim and the yeah the cab driver uh, yeah salim the cab driver and the e-freak have sex uh the two actors performing it who are old friends are both straight Wonderful. and they sort of you know just went and acted it out without any prompting and then brian fuller looked at it and he's like yeah it's not going in him unless he's got a 10 inch candy cane cock that can fuck around corners <laughs> that was that was literally his quote <laughs> It's the best quote That's ever. That's just fucking outstanding. That's honestly... Oh, which, side note here, I think one of my favorite Brian Fuller stories... Are you familiar with the, the butt crack on Hannibal? And the thing that happened when he was running Hannibal? No. So, real quick, this is the greatest thing yeah. ever. Which, like, when I think of, like, American TV.png, it's yeah. this. Where, um, in season one of Hannibal, there was a, a killer called the Angel Maker who yes. would uh, strip people naked and uh, pose them and flay the skin off of their backs into wings. I recall this episode. Right, like you do. And uh, so he filmed the thing and there were butt cracks in the shot because they were naked. And he sent the dailies to NBC and they were like, Brian, you can't show butt cracks on TV. And then jokingly, he sends back like, if I filled the butt cracks with blood, would that be okay? And they were like, that would be fantastic. I do So that's what now. they did. And it's like, you know what? We, we can't deal with butt cracks, but if you fill it with blood, now we're, we're in business. We can do that. Not that I've been watching the latest season of game of thrones sure. but um f you know it's hard not to keep up with vaguely what's been going on because the internet sure but the whole thing about aria who's been stabbing and murdering people in very intricate ways for many um, seasons now and we're all very proud of her and we're all very proud of her and then 